Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. Today, we're going to take a look at the influence of literature on our politics. And don't think that this is some very high-flown idea. It has always been a force. Books affect policy. Policy reflects what is written about it. To discuss the subject, and now it is in some, some reason to examine it, and that is, I wonder myself, whether social media isn't usurping the role the traditional novels have had. To discuss this issue, I have two professors of English from Brown University, Philip Gould and Timothy Buse. And we'll start with uh, Phil. Welcome to the broadcast. What do you think novels contribute to policy and ameliorating national crises? I look at it as an Americanist, and I guess I look at it historically. Um, I don't think we've had in recent years a kind of modern equivalent of uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin uh, that, for example, um, sold wildly, became arguably the first bestseller. Uh, and as Lincoln put it when he met Stowe, uh, somewhat cheekily, but I think also seriously, uh, he said, you're the the little lady that started the big war. Um, the novel was wildly popular, however, to your earlier point, Llewellyn, in that it was able um, to be serialized, so it tapped into magazine readers and culture. Uh, it, it immediately then had a multimedia kind of uh, anchor, and it became in turn poached on by all the Uncle Tom shows, uh, the kind of minstrel theater and popular theater in New York City and, and elsewhere. So if the novel's going to have oomph today politically, I think it needs to think of itself in a multimedia kind of framework. Which means it's not really a novel anymore, is it? A novel which we assume to be, a, 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 you know, between two covers of a given number, roughly a given number of words and pages. Well, you know, I don't know. I guess I would politely disagree somewhat in that the question of what is a novel is theoretically and historically interesting. I think the novel is always kind of absorbing and animating other kinds of media forms, really since the 18th century. Uh, you could say that during the Vietnam era, that you know, it was the new journalism that was actually kind of borrowing fictionalized uh, strategies and techniques and in some way becoming the powerful literary commentary uh, on the protest movement and the war and American foreign policy. Uh, Joan Didion uh, manages this in her, her novel of uh, the Vietnam era in democracy, published in the early 80s. Um, so I, I think um, that what's a real novel might even be a moot point, especially in the year 2020. I would say that on Vietnam, that, you know, if you read Graham Greene's The Wild American in 1955, uh, there might not have been a war. I've always <laughs> thought that if... Uh, uh, two American presidents sequentially had read that novel, they would behave differently, and the whole course of history might have been changed. Tim, welcome to the broadcast. What do you think about this? Thank, thank you, Luella. Well, I want to pick up on one point that uh, Phil made, which I think is really important, and that, and that is what distinguishes the novel from social media forms, and that is the, the question of fiction and fictionality. And, it, and it, it's also what distinguishes the novel from other 
ways in which we make sense of the political world, you know, disciplines such as economics and, um, and history um, and uh, uh, political science do a certain kind of work to explain the world to us. But the novel does something else, which I think is really um, uh, uh, central to what the novel does. It often makes use of the same kinds of narratives to, to, to help us to understand the political world. But it does something else, which is allow us at the same time to detach ourselves from those narratives and in fact to, to crit crit critique them and criticize them. So the novel never inhabits the language that it is using in the same way that other um, disciplines and modes of writing do. Would you like to push out, point out some novels that have had a, a profound impact? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I was thinking a little bit about about uh, you know this great sort of nineteenth century novel, Dickens's Bleak House, about an interminable you know legal case, which gives, but it it does something else as well. It gives us a kind of narrative to explain that the huge diversity of economic and social experience in 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 nineteenth century London. So you know you have the the poorest crossing boy Joe at, at the bottom of the heap to the aristocrats at the top, you know, the deadlocks. And Bleak House gives us sort of explanations for this discrepancy of wealth in the greed and selfishness of almost everybody in the, in the novel, except for the, the people right at the bottom, and then a few noble-minded individuals in the middle. But, um, but Dickens sort of also uses these highly authoritative third-person narrators who hold everything together for us and um, create a, a kind of um, sat satirical, uh, angle on all of the characters that we that we understand. Now, I just don't think that other other um, uh, literary and um, and academic forms can do can do quite the same the same kind of work. Um, you know, I could give you a, a little a more recent example if you like, which is which is a novel that I've been thinking about recently. One of the one of the very interesting um, political novels of our time, I think, and it's a, it's by um, an American writer called Jess Walter, and it's a novel about the George W. Bush years, 9/11, uh, and the war on terror, and it's called The Zero, and its main characters are first responders who were present at, uh, uh, you know, in Lower Manhattan on 9/11, and they are, you know, caught up in this kind of fake patriotism and economic nationalism peddled by the New York City mayor who is a, who is a you know a character in the novel uh, although he's not named Rudy Giuliani but you know everyone he's very very recognizable and the novel skewers Bush's rhetoric and Giuliani's rhetoric and just helps us to sort of um, take a, a kind of um, a wonderfully detached and critical um, perspective upon this this world that is that is uh, uh, evolving almost as uh, as um, Jess Walter is is writing. Um, Phil, what about African-American novelists and where have they fit in the whole civil rights struggle? Well, I mean, I think since, you know, the 19th century, the, the capacity to picking up on Tim's point to to fictionalize the politics of slavery uh, in ways that uh, immerse readers in sentiment and in empathy uh, and detach them perhaps from the kinds of political discourses, you know, centered in Washington, DC, uh, have been formative in arguing against slavery and arguing, uh, you know, for civil rights. This is true up through the Civil War 
And in the post-war era, um, novelists like Charles Chestnut, for example, um, are fictionalizing the uh, race riots in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, other novelists are picking up on kind of historical events to talk about Jim Crow America. Um, and they, they do things affectively. Um, they do things sentimentally that, that are simultaneously deeply uh, politically, you know, politically effective. What interests me here, gentlemen, is as a society, all societies have difficulty in looking down. Uh, I think it was Evelyn Wall who said about Southern Rhodesia at, before the Second World War, he said the, uh, the settlers had a, a morbid lack of curiosity about the indigenous inhabitants. We tend to overlook those beneath us and it really requires the novel and the novelist's skill to bring these people and their life and their struggle to life for us. Isn't that one of the roles of the novel? Certain kinds of novels enforce a kind of identification, enforce sentimental uh, you know, modes of relation and intimacies. Um, I, but also I think you know, certain novelists uh, simultaneously can make problematic uh, that mission. Um, but I think the novel, at least the, the history, in the history of the American novel and African-American literature, that the novel's greatest political power resides in the kind of affective uh, responses and identifications that, that, you're, that you're suggesting. Isn't, uh, Tim, isn't that exactly what Dickens did? Uh, it revealed the horrible situation in which most people lived their lives in Britain at the time. I think there's something in Dickens that is not not any longer possible, and that is this extremely authoritative um, narrative voice that frames the entire um, story for us in Dickens. And I think that um, with contemporary um, novels, we don't any longer have that kind of um, hugely authoritative voice uh, any longer. And there's a I. I, there are many, I think there are many reasons for that, but one is that the the, the very kind of um, society that we're that we're living in doesn't have um, the same kind of um, anchoring through uh, a, a series of narratives that are that are um, easily identifiable, um, and and I think that the novel is changing quite radically, and we see that in the contemporary political scene. You know, where is the, for, for example, the belief in national identity and national character? Where is the um, the, the, the reality of like ethical quandaries. I mean, these are these are kind of um, essential um, ideas to novels. In fact, uh, the idea that you would have a self-examination and you'd come out the other side with a with a new evolved um, uh, um, uh, understanding of oneself, uh, a belief in cause cause and effect, and. It, 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 my my sense about the contemporary novel is that we're in a transitional period where those crucial like elements of of classic um, um, realist narrative are no longer quite available to us anymore. And so the novel, I mean, the, the example of the novel that I uh, that I um, I alluded to earlier, Jess Walters, The Zero, it really doesn't have a kind of central um, narrative. You know, the the, cent the, 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 the protagonist uh, this is a firefighter. He's, a, he's suffering memory losses because of his trauma on 9-11. And 
And so he finds himself kind of lurching from scenario to scenario. Um, and we as readers are lurching with him. And the novel does not provide the same kind of large overarching explanatory narrative that Dickens was able to. So I think that when, when Phil is talking about the, um, the slavery narrative, I mean, the same thing is true really of the contemporary African-American novel, but I, I mean, I'd be interested in, in, in Phil in your, in your view about this because something like Harriet Beecher Stowe, again, it's, it's comparable to Dickens actually, when you think about it, um, this, this absolute moral certainty about the, um, the uh, injustice, the injustice of slavery. Um, contemporary African-American literature does not have the same, um, uh, not, not, not to say confidence, but, but it doesn't have the same willingness to kind of put um, a, uh, a, 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 an intense sort of like moral voice that is, is, that is confident enough to frame itself as such. So Yeah, yeah. And, and to Llewellyn, to Tim's point and to your earlier question, there's a very controversial argument now in sort of, you know, what Tim and I do for a living in African-American studies that, you know, the African-American novel and literature sort of ended with the end of the struggle for the civil rights movement. And I think what Tim's getting at is how novels address political issues in kind of contemporary moments of fragmentation, of uh, the same problem we all face of siloed news and kind of the uncertainty of what's real, of what's true or what's, you know, uh, fictionalized. And so that I think contemporary fiction is much more sensitive to these philosophical problems that older writers like Douglas and Stowe, you know, didn't bother with. They stood on the ground of kind of liberal and democratic and sentimental uh, and individualist kind of natural rights ideas, and they ran with it. Tim, what did the angry young men, their plays and novels, do for Britain? And was that the last transformative period of writing in England? Oh, that's that's a very interesting interesting question. Um, in terms of, of course, the younger many of the younger angry young men were in fact playwrights and. Uh, and well, that's right, but there were also novels Saturday night and Sunday morning. For yes, that's right. I think it was, I don't know if it was the last transformative moment, but I think that it was certainly it, one, one way of understanding that period was as one of the last moments where a, um, where a strong central um, um, denunciatory narrative was possible in the novel. You know, you read someone like, um, I don't know, Kingsley Amis or someone like that. And, uh, you know, you have this, um, it's all, I mean, it's, it's very chauvinistic, actually, you know, he, he, it, and it's, uh, it's class based and class politics is very important to it. And, uh, and, and gender politics are absolutely absent. So, you know, it's a moment when the novel was, uh, was a, um, had a, a sort of urgency. But, you know, I, re I read those novels now, and I can, I can barely stomach them because they because of the certainty with which they they seem to inhabit their their provincial world do we read novels for purpose or do we read them for entertainment and i'll say straight out i read them for entertainment for escapism to live in another place to incorporate another set of people in my life with a day or two that i'm reading a novel uh shouldn't that be the purpose of reading novels what do you think phil I tend to agree with you, Lon, in that um, if the novel is successful politically, it, it is routed usually through the formal and aesthetic and imaginative brilliance of performance. It, and it, it, it has to operate through 
kind of its function to entertain, to Tim's earlier point, to even kind of lose oneself uh, in the intimacies and the imagined, you know, world of the novel. Um, it's, it's political import, it's political work it does, uh, gets routed through that and not the other way around, generally. What, uh, so what are the great African-American novelists of the last half century, say, going back to 1950, say, the long um, I, I think most discussions start with Ellison, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, someone that could think about race both historically and aesthetically and formally, uh, to, to think originally about American problems um, and in ways that all, always weren't popular with later uh, black arts movements and other, uh, you know, kind of more radical racial uh, approaches uh, to civil rights. Um, but I, if I were recommending one, I would start with Invisible Man. There are all sorts to add. Toni Morrison, probably a dozen of them you'd talk about. Um, I don't know if you'd add anything, Tim, for what I'm missing. I'm probably missing a lot. I imagine. No, I mean, well, you know this field better than I do, but, um, I, but I, um, what I would, um, I, I love this point, by the way, about uh, entertainment, because I think that one of the distinctive um, qualities of the novel is that it make, does its political work through entertainment. I mean, it's, it's, it's very sly. It, it never, um, or very rarely in the, in the contemporary period, um, says outright what its political message or, um, or, or, um, or, or uh, you know, what it wants to, it very rarely says its message directly. And, the, and one of the novels that I think is really worth thinking about in this vein is a novel by one of the really the, 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 the prominent um, African-American novelists of, of our time, Colson Whitehead. And, you know, I, one of his novels is called Zone One. It's from 2011. It's a, it's a novel about a global pandemic in, in which the infected, the people infected by the disease become zombies who take over the country. It invites a kind of allegorical reading, uh, maybe less so now, given that we're actually in the grip of a grip of a pandemic. <laughs> but the, you know, so, but it's using a popular form, i.e. the zombie novel. And the big question is, you know, who are the zombies? And the, the brilliance of the novel is partly that it doesn't tell us. It's impossible to determine with, with any real certainty you know, who the zombies are supposed to represent. Um, it's been in interpreted as a novel about race, although race is barely present. There's, there are a couple of indicators that the, um, that the um, narrator is, uh, is uh, an African-American man. Um, but, you know, one way in which we might read this novel is, is that it, it's about, um, it's actually about, you know, the people that have been left behind by the main political parties, poor and lower middle class whites in rural areas, you know, uh, Hillary Clinton called these called these people very ill-advisedly the deplorables uh, 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 back in 2016. And these people, as we know, largely voted for Trump. And what happens at the end of this novel, without really giving anything away, is that the narrator realizes that the the, the, the zombies are are indestructible. Um, that they are a political force that it is impossible to to, to ignore or to beat down. And um, and that's how they, the novel ends with this with the emergence of the of the um, of the zombie horde, and I think that this without really being able to say with any certainty 
um, what the um, zombies stand for in this novel, this is what makes it a, a, an urgent political novel for the, for, the, for the present, even though it was written before the, the, the real emergence of the, of the current um, political um, uh, challenges of, our, of, our, you know, of, the, of the current uh, administration. When I was younger than I am now, quite a bit younger, the writers we were reading were Somerset Maugham, John Steinbeck, uh, uh, Hemingway, and uh, Graham Greene. Uh, they seemed like the great towering figures, and now we don't hear too much of them. Uh, my own suspicion is Greene has, Green has retained his place in the pantheon, and maybe the others have left. Yeah, I mean, canons run in cycles, but I, I think that over the last few decades at least, and maybe even longer, that, you know, both in and, and now outside the academy, that there's, uh, there's been a widening of the purview, um, and there's been a self-conscious attempt by people that teach and publish, uh, the academics and non-academics, uh, to think of the great American novel or to think of British and American literature in ways that include the Caribbean, that include diasporic immigrant figures, uh, that account, you know, for the ways in which, as Tim was saying, maybe Kingsley Amos, Amos doesn't uh, for issues of, of race and, and gender and other modes of difference. Um, and so it's, it's not like these novels aren't taught, but they're part of different conversations and, you, and larger ones, I guess. How do you teach novels without turning people off the interest in just going out to read a book for fun? Well, in the early American novel, I actually start with a non-novel, and that's Thomas Paine's Common Sense, because okay. it uses all of the powerful uh, ideas of seduction and sexuality and power that have grown out in the English novel in the 18th century, and now it deploys them to talk about the British Empire being a cr cruel seducer to these poor, uh, you know, virtuous uh, Americans. Um, and so it, it shows that in an age when novels really weren't even, or were part of literature broadly thought of, um, that there are these kind of animating relations between genres and politics and, and literature. But you get people to read. I mean, I think teaching the novel's wonderfully easy once you get, you know, rolling with it. I know Tim does as well. Um, yeah, I, I, absolutely. Actually, you 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 uh, you brought up the quite American uh, Llewellyn. This is a novel that I that I I very much teach, as a matter of fact. Um, and I think it does several things. I mean, certainly it tells us about that that moment when you know before um, 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 when Vietnam was still, in fact, um, uh, a French war. Um, so it, it tells us about you know um, uh, it, it tells us about that moment of particular um, British and French European you know. Uh, colonialism and the complexity of it and of course it individualizes it and gives us gives us uh, greens um, again um, 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 chauvinistic but also um, also urbane and um, and wonderfully witty and and clever framing of the of the of that situation but it also teaches us about the the ways in which the novel as a form has has just transformed and and it's true that I do usually teach it alongside and in in contrast with some of the more recent developments in the novel that um, Phil was talking about, where where really it, it, novelists do not um, do not have this, the, quite the same um, um, sort of centered um, 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 again 
just clarity that you that you get with um, with 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 a writer like Green. Uh, but it's a it's a wonderful novel to teach, and uh, precisely because of those those narrative um, that the clear narrative directionality and the, and the gratifying. Um, That's very interesting. We're, we're coming to an end here, and I want to ask you both: How do you select things to read? I was a great believer in the used bookstore where you'd come upon a novel you'd never heard of, you'd take it home and you'd love it. And you'd find out it was very famous or that it was not known at all. Uh, nowadays, we have so much media we can, especially with reviewing, to be guided to what we read. So there's a kind of narrowing, even if we aren't aware of it. Uh, how do you keep yeah. people reading eclectically? You know, the... The art of browsing the used bookstore uh, is, it's not a lost art, but it might be waning more, more than it should be. But you raise a good point. If you buy things on Amazon, then you're targeted and they'll make suggestions that sort of push you in certain directions. And you, you, only, you only know what you know, so you go to what you know. Right. And so getting off the grid demands a little bit more patience and time, which in our own age and technology uh, is, is kind of at a premium, I'm afraid. Uh, but you, you raise a good point. It's, uh, it's kind of the joy of the, the undiscovered, the gem. I, actually, I find myself very often teaching, selecting books to teach that I have not myself read and need to, and feel that there is a conversation around among my, among my colleagues like Phil and other, other, other colleagues at Brown, um, that uh, I, I realize that if I don't assign them as, as, as works to teach in my courses, I will not uh, properly get a handle on them or, or, uh, or uh, really get to the bottom of them or read them at all. So, so in fact, I mean, there's often this very kind of pragmatic uh, uh, view. I, I miss the, I mean, the the, the the disappearance of used bookstores as well as precisely a kind of uh, a great resource for teaching. <laughs> a joy. I would like to ask both of you, do you have any books of your own that we could tell people about, Phil? Uh, well, I mean, I, you know, academic books that I've written over the years and uh, working now on a, a kind of study of literature and politics during which, the U.S. Civil War. Um, which which book of yours are you most proud of? Let's direct people to it. Uh, I think uh, I wrote a book in the early 2000s, Barbaric Traffic, uh, and it's about anti-slavery literature across transatlantic. Uh, and it, it, it made it maybe an unpopular argument about uh, to rethink what we mean when we say race in the late 18th century. So even though it was controversial, I think uh, it, it precipitated some useful conversation. We'll find it on the web and put it on the screen. And Tim? Yeah, thank you, Lewin. That's very, that's very nice of you to ask that. Um, yeah. I suppose uh, I, my most recent book was called The Event of Postcolonial Shame, which was an, an analysis of um, shame in um, the context of um, colonial literature. So, uh, in fact, I didn't write about um, Graham Greene, but Gre Greene's The Quiet American is a novel that is riven with shame. And, uh, and uh, my, my, my focus was on, in fact, more recent um, uh, uh, novelists in that book. Well, I hate to tell you in finishing here that I'm one of the last embers of the British Empire. <laughs> and, and I have a deep affection for it. Thank you both for coming on. It's lovely to have you. And please come back again. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Lorraine. Yeah. That's our show for today. Thank you all for coming. 
We'll be back next week. And please remember to take your social distancing seriously and wear your mask. We'll be back. Cheers. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy. Full shows on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms. Subscribe and take us with you in your podcast.